I've had the opportunity last month to go on two different mission trips um, from West Park. One was with the high schoolers. We went to New Orleans and served there, and there's going to be a video of that at our next family gathering. And we also took uh, some young adults and some older adults like me um, to Greece, and we put on an English camp for their students. And they are probably one of the more diverse places I've ever been to. Um, Within our camp, we had all of us leaders and probably 55 to 60 students um, from elementary through high school age, and there were 16 different nationalities represented. And so that just speaks to the outreach of the Cosmovision Center and the things, the wonderful things God is doing through them. And it speaks to what uh, Greece is really becoming. Um, 2,000 years ago, Greece was the gateway to which the gospel went from the Middle East, it went west. And I think now, 2,000 years later, Greece may be becoming the gateway that the gospel goes back. Um, God is doing some really amazing things. Uh, for instance, I'll, I'll share a quick story. Mahalis, one of the camp director, was working at a refugee camp that uh, they help and they've been building relationships with. And he was taking the leader of the Afghani camp, um, full of refugees, he was taking their, their leader to a hospital appointment, a medical appointment of some sort, and he was driving about an hour each way, and during this day, he felt impressed to share the gospel, so hour there and an hour back, he had this guy's full attention, he couldn't go anywhere, so the guy was a um, very intelligent guy, and he was listening the whole time, and they got back after the appointment, and he, he just looked at Mahalis, and he said, is what you're saying true? Really true, do you believe this? And Mahalis goes, yes. And so the guy thinks on it for a little while and he goes, well, my question is this, why did you never come to Afghanistan to share share with us the gospel? And uh, Mahalis didn't really have a good answer to that. And uh, the guy thought for a little more and he came back and he said, oh, I I think I've figured out why. We we probably would have killed you. And he goes, but, but, I think your God is doing something amazing. I think maybe he is allowing us, or he is causing us to become refugees so that we can come here and hear it. And uh, he became a Christian and is at work partnering with the Cosmovision Center to share the gospel among the refugee camps around them. So it is really amazing. And... It is something that our church can be just proud, and we are privileged to partner with them in the amazing work that they're doing over there. So um, anyway, we're in Romans today. Uh, This is the second week of our Romans 8 series entitled Freedom in Christ. This is our overarching theme of the chapter, and really, you could say chapters 5 through 8 have this overarching theme, but... We're going to be in Romans 8 today, verses 14 through 17 mainly, but shifting around a little bit. So if you turn there, we'll get to there in a minute. When the Constitution of our United States was finally finished and signed, Benjamin Franklin famously said, Our new Constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency, but in this world... Nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. 
And this is a famous quote. We all know it. And as Americans, we all affirm it. Um, And as Christians, though, we know that there are many more things which are permanent than death and taxes. But as Americans, we know uh, Ben was right on at least those two things. And as I'm figuring out how to be an adult, it's going to take me a while, um, I'm figuring out that, that Ben Franklin may have forgotten one. I think that there is a third certainty in life, at least as an American. Um, So it should read, uh, three things are certain, death, taxes, and debt. Yes, debt. (laughs) It is becoming increasingly difficult, as you well know, in our world uh, to live without some kind of debt. Now, I know... uh, Many of us are finance guys here, so I'm not going to say that all debt is bad. In fact, debt loans can be a very good thing. A loan provided my wife and I with a great house to raise our family in. A loan provided me the opportunity to go to seminary and get education and training. Um, They allow us to get the things we need. And provided we handle such debt responsibly, it can mature us and teach us good things give us good qualities, it can give us accountability and responsibility and instill in us a good work ethic. And then that final day comes and we get to learn the satisfaction of a job well done when we get to submit that final payment. But, as we well know, debt can be a useful tool, but handled irresponsibly can be a very destructive force in our lives and in our families. This is the bad side of debt. And this bad side of debt has a way, as few things do in our lives, of making us feel shackled and chained. Making us joyless, robbing us of our joy, making us feel trapped and hopeless and just plain mad. For instance, I'll give you a quick story. Um, We're all family here, so I can talk about money and it's not awkward, okay? Okay. a little while ago, my wife and I, we sign up for a gym down the road. Really great. We're using it. We're enjoying it. We're taking our kids to the pool. Um, it's a really nice place. So I sign up for a certain period of time. And when that period of time is getting close to coming to an end, we're talking. We're thinking, you know, just the way our lifestyle is right now, we can't use it as much as we were. Really, that money, we can put it to better use in other places. So I call the bank. I, once the contract period is done, I call the bank. I stop. Payment. Okay, great. So, putting that money elsewhere, I just go about my business. Well, several months go by, and I get a phone call, and somebody's on the other line saying, Hi, we're from such and such gym, and you owe us money from the past few months. Um, you're, you're a little behind. And I was like, what are you talking about? My contract ran out months ago. I have not been to your gym in months. What are you talking about? And they go, well, sir, you know, they were nice about it. But according to your contract, uh, once your initial period was done, your contract renews month to month. And unless you come in and sign a form, it's going to keep renewing. So you owe us for the past several months, and it's going to be such and such amount. So needless to say, I I just remembered that I was a Christian, and, and I held my tongue. But it made me mad. And even though it wasn't a great sum of money, it's still that little, that little pinprick of annoyance, that pinprick of anxiety that I walk around with knowing that I am in debt and it's not a good debt, it's a bad debt, it was irresponsible of me 
and it's my fault. My name was on the, my signature was on the line. But I don't like it. I hate it. <laughs> um, I hate the feeling of being trapped by a debt that I owe. And, and yet I also love the feeling of being able to submit that last payment and getting that debt done. Of whether you're hitting, you're clicking the submit button online or whether you're handing them the last check and you get that paid in full slip, that is, there's a freedom in that. There's a release of weight from my shoulders. There's the ability to breathe again. Um, and there's a feeling of saying, hey, I worked hard and I paid this off. However, in regards to debt, we were born you and I, and, and all the rest of humanity, past, present, and future, on this earth are born with a debt that we cannot imagine. A debt greater than we could imagine. A debt so great that we could never hope to repay it. And we're born to it. We have no choice in the matter. This is the debt that goes all the way back to Adam. The curse the debt of perfection lost, the debt of sin, and we are hopelessly lost in it. Paul in Ephesians 2 describes our state, our lost state like this. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were hopelessly in debt. In Romans, we have those comforting verses that say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have the more comforting verse that says, the wages of those sin is death. But not even our earthly death, when you think about it, could ever repay this debt. Well, for two reasons. First, because we do not have now, nor never will have in the future, enough to repay this debt on our own. See, we are imperfect beings with imperfect souls, and the sin of debt, or the debt of sin, requires a perfect payment. And the second reason not even our earthly death can pay this is because. The debt is not just with our bodies, it is with our souls, and our souls will never die. This is an eternal thing. A lot of theologians back in the day were wrestling with this, and they'd said, oh, well, we can fix this with a place called purgatory. And, and if you don't repay your debt during your lifetime, you can go to this place after, debt, or after death where you can go through trials and you can persevere and your soul can be purified. And they tried to figure it out that way. Any way at all to be able to pay this debt, but the truth of the matter is, is that being separated from the mercy and grace of Christ, there is nothing our souls can ever do to achieve perfection and therefore pay this debt. Talk about feeling trapped. We were born into a very bad reality. We were eternal slaves to our sin. In the Roman times, you didn't just file bankruptcy if you couldn't pay your debts. You became a slave to your debtor or to your debt holder, and you worked. 
until the debt was paid. And so you literally became a slave, and we were born slaves to this sin, to this debt that we could never pay. But, but Christ, right? But Christ. God was not oblivious to our situation. He was not insensitive to our frustration. He was not unwilling to help in our helplessness. He sent Jesus to do what we could not do. This is the message of the gospel. He sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we could not live. He sent Jesus to make the sacrifice that we could not make. And he sent his son Jesus to defeat the giants of sin and death that we could never hope to defeat on our own. And finally, God raised his son Jesus from the dead that we might one day share in that resurrection. This is the truth of the gospel message. And when we hear it, the Holy Spirit draws us to God. It opens, He opens our eyes so that through faith we might believe in the Son and give Him our lives, which were rightfully His to begin with. Thankfully, Paul did not stop in Ephesians with children of wrath. Um, he kept going. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a the gift of God. So the good news of the gospel is that we are no longer in debt. We are no longer slaves to sin. And Romans 8 is our confirmation of this. This is why everyone loves Romans 8. So many people say it's their favorite chapter because it contains our hope and our joy and the confirmation of our new reality and our new identity in Christ and our new and bright future, both here on earth and in heaven to come. It's a beautiful chapter of hope for all of us struggling and fighting and trying to figure out how to live as Christians in a messed up, fallen world. So let's go to our passage. Um, like Joe said, it's in page 944 if you're using the Bible provided for you. And I was told to focus on verses 14 through 17, but I'm really going to have to back up and revisit some of what Pastor Joe talked about last week because the, the train of thought really begins, I think, with chapter 12 is where the paragraph kind of begins and it continues on through verse 17. So we need to go back to verse 12. So let's start with verse 12 and 13. And Joe did a great job last week of building and leading us to these verses. Um, here we go. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul... In the, first, in the first part of the chapter, has built up to the truth statement in verse 12, which says that we are debtors not to the flesh, not to live according to the flesh. And then he gives us a challenge statement in verse 13, saying if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But 
If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. You'll notice in verse 13 that it, it begins with the word for. And so we have to, I had to go back to my English grammar days and figure out what that truly meant. It, the word for right there ties verse 13 back to the previous idea. Back to the previous statement as sort of a, a cause and effect. So you can read verse 12 and say, We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live by the flesh, we're going to die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. So it's a cause and effect. It ties it back. It, it brings it a step deeper. So what Paul is saying here is a truth and then challenging our will. He's saying, hey, Christians, you're no longer under the debt of sin, the curse of sin, so stop living like it. In fact, go and actively put sin to death. Fight. And we're going to see that our passage today continues on in, in much the same way, going a step deeper and a step deeper, pointing us back to the idea presented in verse 12. And he's going to present us in verse 16 and 17 with a truth and a challenge of the will. And so let's read verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So I apologize a little bit because I don't have three neat, nice Baptist points to go along with the lesson today. Um, I thought it better to just let the verses speak for themselves. So we're just going to go verse by verse from 14 down to 17 and see what they have to say. Let it take us deeper and deeper. So verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Again, it begins with the word for. So what does that do? It ties it back to the statement before it. And what does the statement before it do? It ties it back to the statement before that. Because now we have two statements that begin with four. So we have to go all the way back to verse 12, which says we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So it takes us deeper. It shows us a different, a different cause and effect. So if I'm sitting here and reading this and hearing this for the first time, I really want to be a son of God. I want to be a slave to sin no longer. I want to be a son of God. So my first question is going to be, well, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Because remember, this, this section in Romans 8 is a confirmation. It's how we can check ourselves. Are we sons of God? Well, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, it's not incredibly difficult. It's are you living by God's desires or your own? If you sin, do you have a spirit telling you, hey, wait, stop, something's wrong? Are you repentant of sin? You go back to verse 13. Are you actively fighting sin? Are you in the Word? Do you value God's law? 
Are you letting the Spirit lead? Putting yourself second. If you can say yes to those things, not perfectly, but yes, then you count yourself as a son of God. Now, some Bible translations change that word son and and change it to children or change it to sons and daughters. Um, I want to keep the word son. And and I'll tell you why in a minute. So just bear with me. I want to keep the word son. Um, It's going to make sense here in a little bit. So, again, this is our confirmation. We belong in God's family. So let's go to verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Notice that capital S, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now we need to camp out on this verse because he's saying some big things here. Again, it begins with the word for, so it ties it back and we have to go all the way back to verse 12. You are, no, you are not debtor, you are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Why? Because you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons and can cry, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are a son of God. And you didn't receive that spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, what fear is he talking about? Um, I think, and this is just from experience in myself, experience in ministry, experience in life in general, but what is that fear? What is the fear that comes from the spirit of slavery? Our basis human fear, I think, is a fear of rejection. I have talked to so many people And I know, I can see that the root of this is a fear of rejection. It manifests itself in so many different ways. But at our most basic level as human beings, we need to be accepted. We need to be accepted. Now, there are lesser levels of acceptance and greater levels. Um, We need to be accepted by friends at school. We need to be accepted by coworkers at work. We need to be accepted and loved by our family members. As a child, I wanted acceptance from my father. As a high schooler, I wanted acceptance from my peers. As a college student, I wanted acceptance from my professors. Out of college, I wanted acceptance from a boss. Now, as a father, I want acceptance from my children. So it's like a cyclical thing. But we fear rejection. And the biggest rejection we fear, and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, we fear rejection from our Father, the Creator. Why did Adam and Eve hide in shame? Why did they hide from God? They were afraid. They were ashamed. Afraid once God found them, He would reject them. Romans 8, but Christ, slavery to adoption. Paul is confirming here that we no longer have to fear because the Father has accepted us now and for all eternity. He has adopted us. 
We used to be a children of wrath, but now we are sons of God. Slaves, now sons. And he uses that word adoption, the spirit of adoption. He attributes it to the Holy Spirit is a spirit of adoption. And in the Roman world, this would have been a weighty statement. Because adoption in the Roman world, it's a serious matter now, and it was just as serious, if not even more so, a matter in the Roman world. It was a very lengthy and complex multi-step process in which the first step was to completely wipe the slate clean of the person being adopted. This would most likely be a a landowner or a man who would want someone to pass his inheritance to. Maybe he didn't have any kids and he needed an heir. Or maybe he had kids and he didn't like them and he needed an heir that he would like. And so the person's, the adoptee's name would be cleared from all past. And then there would be a process of paperwork and writing into the new will. Oftentimes they had as much, if not more so, than the biological children. And then, at the very end, at least seven witnesses had to be present for the final signing so that those seven witnesses could affirm and validate should the adoption ever be put into question. And there, actually, if you look in the Bible, a lot of cases of adoption. Moses was the first case of adoption that we have. A baby floating down a river, seen by an Egyptian princess and adopted, becomes a prince of Egypt. We see a little girl named Esther adopted by her uncle, Mordecai, and he looks after her and watches after her and raises her. We see our Savior, Jesus Christ, adopted by his stepfather, Joseph. I think one of the more touching examples of adoption was with a little-known guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth um, was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul. Jonathan and David were such close friends. And David, after he had become king, and Saul and Jonathan had passed away, and most of Saul's family was gone, he had a desire to honor someone in Jonathan's family. To honor his old friendship and his old covenants that he made with Jonathan. And he asked the question, are there any living relatives of Jonathan? And the word came back to him, there's one. There's one left. But there's, there's kind of a problem. You see, he, when they were, he was a young boy and when they were fleeing the palace, his nurse dropped him and his legs were broken, and he's lame. And he lives in this barren land, kind of destitute. So King David says, send the summons, bring him here. Now, of course, in those days, it was not uncommon for a new king to totally rid the earth of the old king's family so that he would not, his kingship would never be challenged. And so Mephibosheth... Rightfully so, when he received this summons, was fearful. What is David going to do? I am the last descendant of Saul's line. What is David going to do for me? So he comes to the palace, he falls down expecting the worst, and David does the unthinkable. He says, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you a kindness, Mephibosheth. Because of my friendship with your father, 
I'm going to restore all of Saul's lands to you. Farm them. They're yours. You don't need to be afraid anymore. And in fact, I'm going to go a step further. And this was a huge honor. He said, there will always, there will continually be a place for you at my table. Which was his family's table. To sit next to and be as one of his sons at this table. Now I say this is a a beautiful picture because Mephibosheth wasn't looking for it. There was nothing Mephibosheth could do for it. to, To earn it. He didn't deserve it. In fact, he was kind of an outcast because you had a lame guy who could not hardly, he couldn't really walk, and you didn't really want that in your court or at your table. But David sought him out and gave him a place at the banquet table. It's such a good picture of adoption and the gospel. Now, remember that I said I prefer this term, that we keep the term sons, adoption as sons. And this is not because I am sexist or male chauvinist, although there are times if you ask my wife, she might say differently. Um, But I, I really am not. The reason we need to keep the word sons is because of a context thing and a cultural thing. Now, Paul is talking to both men and women here. And he's saying you all will be a receive the spirit of adoption as sons. So Paul is not excluding women in this statement. So why does he use the word sons? Well, contextually and culturally, if you were going to receive an inheritance, you wanted to be the son back in the day. See, sadly, the Romans and most cultures, then the Romans were better than some, but not great by any means, did not value women as they should have. They did not have the respect that they deserved. They were not entitled to an inheritance. Their fathers often used them to secure financial futures. But the sons, on the other hand, had a future. They had their family's inheritance. They would receive their family's honor. They would receive education. They would receive positions and places. What, the best that their family could give them, they would get as sons. And so we keep the word sons here because of what, it, what Paul meant by it. He said, you're not only getting adopted, but you are getting adopted as sons, which means that you will receive the full inheritance. Now, we're not done with this verse because Paul does something else astounding at the end of it. He says, you've received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Now, now God in the Bible has many names that that all mean something a little different and pull out a unique aspect of his character. But this one's pretty unique. It's only used really, I think, three times in the Bible. Two by Paul, but the first was by Christ himself when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, was the term he used. Now, Abba, Father, that word Abba there is an intimate It it connotates an intimate relationship. So it would be the same as if my little girl came up and said, Daddy. That is what Abba, Father, means. And so God has so many names in the Old Testament. And now we have Daddy. Calling the creator of the universe, Daddy. Is a unique thing. And is a huge thing. J.I. Packer 
says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. And some, and I recognize that for some of you, it is difficult to understand that because you had no earthly example of what a good father was. And so to call God Father brings up bad memories. And that is because we live in a sinful world and many fathers today are not what they ought to be. And it is a tragedy because fathers hold a special place. And the love of a father and the rejection of a father mean everything. For good or for bad. But we get to call the perfect creator of the universe, the one who loves us the most, we get to call him Daddy. And in him we have a father that will never reject us, that will never set upon us expectations that we cannot hope to meet, that loves us unconditionally. We can truly say we are sons and daughters of God. And not just God, but we can say we are sons and daughters of Daddy. And so the people then would have understood this thing of adoption as sons. And they would have understood this thing of calling God Daddy. But they would have been dumbfounded by it. It would have turned everything upside down. But it means so much. Alright, let's go on to verse 16. Spend enough time on verse 15, but we could stay there for the whole time. It's good. Verse 16 says, the Spirit Himself, capital S, so the Holy Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Remember going back to the process of Roman adoption, there had to be seven witnesses so that they could validate it. Well, in our case, there only needs to be one. The witness. The Holy Spirit. And He is dwelling in us and He is communing with our spirit to confirm our adoption within us to give us that confidence, that joy as children of God, and He is confirming it outside of us. To God in heaven, the Spirit is our witness that we belong in the family. He's the one who identifies us. All right, so let's get to verse 17, which has a wonderful truth and a very tough challenge. So Paul worked off of verse 12. Talked about being debtors never to the flesh, to live according to the flesh no more. And he went deeper, and he went deeper, and he went deeper, and now he's giving us a truth statement. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. A little disconcerting that he starts the passage with if, but look back, he's already given us the answer. If we look back, there's the evidence that we have. We are children of God because we are not debtors to the flesh. We don't live that way anymore. We are children of God because by the Spirit we are putting sin to death. We are children of God because we are being led by the Spirit. We are children of God because we can cry, Abba, Father. And we are children of God because His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So, we are children. And since we are children, we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs or fellow heirs with Christ. 
Now, the truth here is that we are heirs of God and we will be glorified one day. We are heirs of God and we will be glorified. Now, what does it mean? I'm going to talk about being glorified first and then we'll get to the heir part. What does it mean to be glorified? Well, you look, we'll look ahead next week, but uh, Romans 8, 29 says that we will be conformed to the image of His Son. So we will not only get to see glory, but we will be given glory. C.S. Lewis says that, was saying that um, we will scarce be able to look at each other without worshiping. And, well, we will because we'll have a pure mind too. We'll only worship God. But, he was talking about Matthew 13, 43, says we will shine like the sun. Our, we will be glorified. We will share in Christ's glory when he takes his place finally at the right hand of God. What does it mean to be an heir? Well, to be an heir is simply the one to receive, who receives the inheritance or who will receive the inheritance from the Father. So what is our inheritance that we are heirs to? 1 Corinthians 3.21-23 through 23 says, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So we are heirs to the world. Remember Christ, the Sermon on the Mount said, the meek shall inherit the earth. We are heirs to the world. We are heirs to God himself. A perfect relationship with him. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So our inheritance is God himself. His presence. And finally, our inheritance is redemption. Redeemed and glorified bodies. Romans 8.23 talk about next week in more detail says we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies so our adoptions as sons is a case of already and not yet so we are already adopted we are secure in his family but we haven't received the inheritance yet we will one day we are being sanctified we are being conformed and one day it, the work will be completed so let's go back. That was the truth that Paul builds to. And then he gives us a challenge. And I wish he had stopped here. If he had just said, hey, you're no longer slave to the flesh, slave to sin. Great. Wonderful. Hey, if you're being led by the Spirit, then you are a son of God. Wonderful. That's amazing. Um, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Yes, I can do that. Well, Okay, by the spirit of adoption, you're, you are sons of God and you are heirs. Yes, wonderful. And you know what the truth is? You're going to be heirs and you're going to be glorified. Yes, amazing. And then he says, provided we suffer with him. Oh, let's stop. Paul, why did you have to write that? 
You could have just stopped with the amazing truth. I wish you had left it out. We could have just been left with heirs and glorified. We would have been happy. What does he mean we have to suffer? It's another if statement. Provided we suffer with him. Suffering is a certainty in the Christian life because we live in a world that's at odds with our Savior, that's at odds with our Lord. So if we follow Christ, then we cannot follow the world and the powers that rule it. And so suffering will come. James 1-2 and Romans 5-3 tell us that it's a certainty. But both of those verses tell us that our suffering in this present time is useful. So we have all the sufferings of this present time. And both James 1-2 and Romans 5-3 says it's useful because that suffering develops the perseverance of our faith in Jesus. And Paul assures us in verse 18, which we'll start with next week, it's not even worth comparing to the glory. It's not even worth comparing to the glory. And in 2 Corinthians 3.17, he says, you know what? This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light momentary affliction is our life. That is our life. And Paul calls it a light momentary affliction. But we go through what we go through. God allows us to go through what we cannot explain sometimes because He is preparing us for the weight of His glory, which is beyond all comparison. Um, I'd like to conclude today with a story, a story that Jesus shared, and I think that it wraps up and sums up these ideas of adoption and sonship and heir um, very well. And it's one of the most beautiful gospel stories in the Bible. It is a story of the prodigal son. So we have this wonderful father with two sons. The one son has eyes only for the world. He demands his, his part of the inheritance. The father gives it to him. The son leaves, squanders it all, lives in sin, follows his own path as far as it could take him. The money runs out. He ends up a pig farmer eating whatever he can, eating the leftovers from the pigs. Finding the end of his rope. And he says, you know what? It is better to be a slave in the house of my father than to do and be what I am now. So I will go back and I will humble myself and I will simply ask to be a slave. And he begins his journey back, and he finally gets to the driveway. And when he's still far off, the father sees him. And the father runs towards him and wraps his arm around him. And the son, just in tears, probably just, I'm sorry, I have sinned against you, I have sinned against God. Let me be a slave. And the father says, No, 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 no. You cannot be a slave. You will not be a slave to sin any longer. I will take you back. I will take you back. You are my son. 
Go prepare the feast. Get the purple robe. It is a beautiful picture of our verses today in Romans 8. Our adoption as sons. Our our mess and our debt that we were lost in. Following our own desires. Going away from God until it could take us no further. And God finally running after us. Picking us up. holding Holding us in His arms. And restoring us to sonship once more. So as the band comes up and we have a time of response, ask yourself as we end, do you share, do you really share in this confirmation this morning? Do you share in the confirmation of Romans 8? Can it be your joy this morning that everything that I have talked about, slaves no more, identity in Christ, sonship, Heirs of God the Father. To be able to cry, Abba, Father. Can you do that? Can you claim adoption as children this morning? And if not, then you have the opportunity to. If you feel the Spirit stirring within you, drawing you to God, do not fight it. Come forward and talk to us during this time. Those of us, those of you who are children of God... The Bible never says it's going to be easy that we need to be reminded of this truth. We need to be reminded of the reason for our joy from time to time because we're not perfect yet. And from time to time, I'll admit that I lose that joy sometimes. I lose sight of it. And I need to be reminded. I need God to pull me back into it. So take this time, if you found yourself away from God's joy, take this time to just bask in this truth. To remind yourself that you are a son of God and to cry out to him, Abba, Father.